the fact that everybody is having this conversation at the moment, I think it's a good thing. Lynn is a is a great person and and he's done a lot. Um, and I, you know, I don't think people should a- attack him, but I I do feel like that we're having this conversation, it's it's a good conversation. That was Jasmine Setha Jones. She is the new star of a hit show on stars called Blind Spotting. That is a TV series adapted from the film version with David Diggs and Rafael Casals back in 2018. What you just heard is her talking about In the Heights. Why her? Because she is the fiance of Anthony Ramos, the lead in the Heights. It was a very good, interesting conversation. We've had her and I think she's a rising star. What were your impressions of her? I knew her dad and her dad is super talented and he's still out there and he's doing a lot of work. His his name is Ron Cephas Jones and she, I I think she's going to be a huge, huge star. I liked everything about her. I liked her performance in this show and I I really feel we're beginning to to see some superstars of tomorrow with some of the people we've been having here on the show. Not to mention the director of the original Blind Spotting we're going to have on the show soon. That's right, Carlos Lopez Estrada. But before we talk to Jasmine Cephas Jones, uh, Mike, you and I need to talk and address something that a lot of people have been already like, "Yo, when are you going to be talking about this issue?" We're going to be talking about In the Heights right now before we talk to Jasmine. Why don't we just jump right in? In the Heights, I flip the lights and start my day. There are heights and endless steps and bills to pay. So the movie comes out and all of a sudden you have this wave of justified Uh, backlashes from the Afro-Latino community on why the movie doesn't reflect the accuracy of Washington Heights, which is it's filled with residents who are dark skin, very black skin as well. That's what we're looking at. The whole root of it, no pun intended here, started with The Root, which is a African-American website. A lot of people should know it. It's one of the most reputable black sources of information in our country. And uh, a reporter by the name of Felice Leon asked John Chu at a junket. Congratulations on In the Heights. It was a lovely musical. But as a Black woman of Cuban descent, specifically from New York City, it would be remiss of me to not acknowledge the fact that most of your principal actors were light-skinned or white-passing Latinx people. So with that, what are your thoughts on the lack of Black Latinx people represented in your film? Yeah, I mean, I think that that was something uh, we talked about and um, and I needed to be educated about, of course. In the end, you know, when we were looking at the cast, we tried to get the people who were best for those roles and that specifically. And we saw a lot of people, people like Daphne or Dasha. But I hear you on, um, you know, trying to fill those cast members with darker skin. I think that's that's I think that's a a, a a really good conversation to have. Something that we should be all be talking about. So ultimately, the whole point here was that roles for black actors mainly went to background dancers and extras, and not the leads. That's the problem, and that right there sums up this whole backlash. Then Miranda decides to apologize and says, and let me just quote it here. I can hear the hurt and frustration over colorism, of feeling unseen in the feedback. In trying to paint a mosaic of this community, we fell short. I'm truly sorry. 
I promise to do better in my future projects, and I'm dedicated to the learning and evolving we all have to do to make sure we are honoring our diverse and vibrant community. Mike, for me, that apology was enough. It's like, okay, let's just move on. That only worsened the issue, Mike. At what point did you, Mike, start noticing that this thing was just getting out of control? From my perspective, I knew early on for a number of reasons uh, that this was snowballing from the fact that it got picked up by the Times, the fact that when that actress said what she said, uh, I knew that wasn't going to sit well. I knew Black Twitter was exploding about it. Latinx Twitter was going on about it. Colleagues I knew were being asked about it or writing about it. And what's interesting about that to me is a lot of Latinos who are what you could call white-facing are very keenly aware of this. They're calling foul because they get it. Let's put it this way. If you are Latino, you're aware of colorism in your community. You're aware of representation in your community. So the question is, how much power do you have to have? And how top of mind does it have to be for you to realize, huh, you know, maybe people will say something. It, it won't be top of mind if things are the way they were five years ago, four years ago three years ago, but a year ago, two years ago, I, it's not the same. If this had come out a year ago when it was supposed to and COVID didn't happen, would we have the same level of backlash? That's that's the big question. That That's the big question. Okay, so now let's start deconstructing. Where do we go from here within the Heights? What, what are the lessons learned? What were the mistakes? And how do we kind of come out to the other side more unified than we are divided at the moment? Brown, black people. That's what this whole podcast is about, man. The answer is the conversation. To me, the only way, and, and I liken it, you know, this is Juneteenth weekend when we're uh, discussing this and when we're recording this. And Juneteenth, the symbolism of making Juneteenth a national, a federal holiday is nice. But the other side of that is that means those same cops, those same teachers, those same white supremacists, they get a paid day off to celebrate something that we're not allowed to teach in school. It's not a victory so much as, OK, are we just to accept what we get? You know, not to bash our boy Donnell in any way. Do we just say, OK, our time is coming? Our dark Latinos, yeah, we'll eventually get on screen. Or, or black people go, oh, yeah, well, eventually we'll get what we're supposed to get. Or do we talk about it? Do we speak out about it? Do Is there a backlash? I am glad there's a backlash because every little step is just a little step. You have to keep stepping. And that's the only way it's going to change is, is for what's happening now. That's Okay, so I'm going to talk a little bit about my immediate reaction to this controversy. The first thing and it's the, the, the first, first reaction I had was, holy sweat, what is going on? You're attacking the wrong guy. This was the first Latino musical in Broadway, The Great White Way, to win a Tony for best musical, the, the highest honor that you can get in the great white way. And it was a Latino story. And at the time when it won, no one said a word about black Latinos on the stage. So people like me are looking at it and we're not looking at it through that lens. We're looking at it. We have one of the greatest modern Latino stories to be told 
And that in itself that it exists is the award. That's that historic moment. So I was very defensive about it. And then this conversation about black Latinos not being seen in media was something that has been raised and then shrugged off for as long as I've been living. Mike, I worked at Univision. I'm not blonde, white, blue-eyed, but a lot of the people that I saw on TV and local Spanish language news is like that. And Univision and Telemundo are two media companies that actually propagate this Afro-Latino issue. And I haven't seen anyone, any reporter that's black or not black, attack Univision and Telemundo and Televisa in Mexico because that's where all the programming is coming from. It's from Mexico. And Mexico is probably one of the more racist media companies and a lot of the producers there that don't ever want to put black people as leads in their novellas. Since the beginning until now, the people that you watch on Univision and Telemundo novellas are so white that you think that when you go to Mexico that the whole country's full of it. You don't see people that look like the novellas in Mexico walking around the streets. It's always been shrugged. So when it came up, guess what my mind thought? This is going to be shrugged again. And it didn't until the New York Times picked it up. And you know what that taught me? Latino validation isn't as good as white validation. All the newspapers, El Diario La Prensa, La Opinión, the magazines, the television newscasts, no one has that conversation. We need to be attacking and we need to be having these conversations, not attacking Lynn, which is way, I mean, this whole movie doesn't deserve the shame that it got. That's my beef. That this movie, the whole intention behind it was uplifting. That's the intent. But, you know, I've been told before that intent, it just sometimes isn't good enough. And I think that intent wasn't good enough here. And we got this conversation. But is it, like you said, is any change really going to happen now? Well, you know what they say, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I think we've done a pretty good deep dive into In the Heights, and I leave it to any of you who have any thoughts, please reach out to us on social media and give us your thoughts. But we got a chance to speak to Jasmine Cephas Jones, who is the daughter of Ron Cephas Jones, who's also an acclaimed actor on television and theater. And she's in a new show called Blind Spotting, which is based on the film Blind Spotting, which was directed by our friend Carlos, and who we will have on the show soon. But I interviewed him back then about this film. And I didn't get to interview her and I didn't get to interview Debbie Diggs, but the characters, the sensibility, everything about this, they've brought and expanded, I think, in this new show. So without much further ado, this is our interview with Jasmine Cephas Jones. What happened? Baby, I'm so sorry. I found him flushing these. Do you want me to get you a toothbrush or a toilet no, razor? I'm going to summer camp, baby. I'm going to jail. I don't know. What is our online banking password? Baby, I'm not going to yell that on the street. Happy New Year. You a 32-year-old baby daddy in jail who almost got her pockets ran until I put you on my credits. 
Yeah. You real grown, Ash. I miss him. Does he know where I am yet? We had an understanding. We would weather whatever storm came along. You don't get to doubt my loyalty. You can talk to me about whatever. Welcome to the ordeal. Let's turn up on this down. Let's turn up on this down! What are the main differences between the, the, the television series and the movie itself? What can viewers expect if they saw the movie and they're now watching the TV series? Well, um, in the movie, it really focuses on, on Colin and his last few days of probation and kind of his PTSD of seeing, um, you know, an un unarmed black man get shot by a white policeman. Stop! Don't you! And it's, it's how he kind of navigates through the whole movie with his best friend who is white and how, you know, they're, how, the, you know, they're, they're both navigating through the world, being different cultures in this really short amount of time that is like so much pressure and how that affects their friendship. And so that is the movie. And in the movie, I play Ashley, um, who is Miles's girlfriend. And in the TV show, um, we now follow Ashley, uh, my character that I played in the film, and is her perspective. Um, her life gets turned completely upside down when we find out that Miles has to go to jail and he's there for a while. And she moves in with his mother and his sister. Played by Helen Hunt, and magnificently. Played by Helen Hunt and Jalen Barron. And, um, you know, it's it's kind of, she's so used to having her partner there. I mean, she they've been together since they were basically teenagers. And now it's her navigating, you know, raising her son on her own, um, you know, kind of moving back to the hood, which she's like, worked so hard to like get out of, you know? Let me breathe. A lockbox Orion, he, a 12 year clock goddess, we bonded deep. We crisscrossed ourselves a doctrine till it was our policy. We built a church of truth with rough tongues and hid the gun from company. We just built ourselves a temple from the ruins we grew up in, and now the rugs pulled free. But I am my man's left hand, and right eye, and both ears, and he is my... He is my... But he is a box today, in a box today, and I am still unpacking some of why. Until then, I'm here. And it's kind of moving back into her past and, you know, really dealing with this in, in this household. That is, she, you know, she's so used to having the say and, you know, she's built this family of her own and that's kind of taken away from her under, you know, under this roof. And there's a lot of um, other big personalities and other people that want to say just as much as, as she, as she does. So it's really, you know, and, and how she's going to tell her son that her father, his father is in jail. We know that the, 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 the probably the main priority, the principal theme of this is to see how the other live 
uh, lives when someone in a household goes to jail. Yes. We usually focus in Hollywood just on the person that went to jail because that's where the trauma is. But we also forget that there's trauma that's happening externally. Oh, yeah. Are there any other types of social messages and themes that the show hits that maybe we're not aware of? Oh, so many. I mean, <laughs> uh, colorism, gentrification, um, you know, there's uh, just being a woman in general <laughs> and um, all the, the ups and downs in that and that, it, you know, surrounding that. I mean, there's this whole scene um, in, in episode two where, um, you know, Ashley gets mistreated at her at the workplace. Um, and one, because she's a woman and the second, because she's a woman of color and, you know, she takes a tennis racket and trashes a hotel room. And I always say, like, I, I did that for all the women that have wanted to do that and couldn't, um, so many times we're, we're at a workplace and, you know, we've been mistreated or some sleazy weird dude said something to you and you're, you know, you can't fight back because you're, you might lose your job. It's, it's, you know, all of these things that we think about and the show kind of executes these feelings and emotions just so beautifully and brilliantly um, because it's like, that's the action that we all want to do. <laughs> you know, it's like, that's the action that, you know, we're, we're like dying to do, but just, just can't do sometimes. So um, there, you know, there's, there's a lot. Um, that we talk about in the show, um, including, yeah. And, and, you know, the, the top, those I think are like the four like main topics of, of, of the show. Well, I see so many topics being covered. <clears throat> A couple of things that stand out to me are just choices, uh, adaptation, uh, accountability, uh, those kind of things. I thought they were very strong. But I want to ask you a little bit about one of the things, and, and I, I interviewed Carlos when the film came out, uh, so I, I had a connection to that, and, and we stayed friends. And then uh, at the time, what really stood out was the narrative style, the, the use of theatricality, prose, um, you know, almost like performance art, and, and I love that aspect of the show where people interact, you know, like, you know, he's at the jail, he asks a question, everybody looks, you know, all those kind of things that, that are just moments that, that are heightened, you know, and, you know, they, they're heightened not only in how it's played, but as you say, sometimes it's, it's how you really feel like you, when you're saying something, it feels like everybody's listening. So I'm wondering uh, what it's like for you to be in this environment, especially because you've done theater, you've done poetry, uh, you know, so this is a project that allows you to kind of flex all your muscles at the same time. So what is that like doing this? Because it's unique on so many levels. I think it's it's one of my it's my favorite thing about the show is is our storytelling. It's one of like my favorite ways to experience art when we talk about serious issues. I think sometimes when you see things in in a heightened form that's not so exactly on the nose, but we're, you know, uh, expressing it in this heightened way, it almost hits you harder emotionally. And it, it's almost a better understanding of it. Um, 
I'm not sure why, but I, I just feel like sometimes it hits harder when you see it that way. The choreography feels like a Greek chorus in a Greek play to me. Um, a lot of me, Diggs, Rafa, Candice, um, Benny, Benjamin, uh, we're, we're Helen, we've, we've all done theater before. It's very like in our bones and to be able to portray this in a, in a TV script, in a TV show, in a way like this, I've never seen it done before. And I got so excited when we started brainstorming about the show and started talking about it. And, you know, one of also one of my favorite things that Ashley does is she breaks the fourth wall and does heightened verse into camera. And I was so nervous because I was like, I'm not a rapper. Like, I don't, I don't know, Rafa, Rafa and Biggs and Benny, like they're rappers, like they, they can kill this shit. Like, I don't, I can't do this. There, there are many, there are many moments on the show where it's like, I can't do this. And they were like, yes, you can, Jasmine. I was like, okay. So what do you do in that situation where insecurity, self-doubt begin to pervade into your performance that you're getting paid for and that your performance is carrying the investment budgets, the critics, you know, that are looking at you, that will be reviewing. I mean, the eyes of the world, of the industry is over you. How do, how have you managed to overcome that? don't think about it <laughs> yeah i think it's like you have to work through it i mean fear will i always say fear will never leave you you will always have fear the the thing is what you have to do is learn how to work through fear fear is never going to leave you and fears there is because you care if i didn't have fear that would mean that i didn't care about what i what i what i do so you know i, I it's 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 the process of working through it and breaking it down and you know, and, and it's rehearsal process and it's being prepared and it's asking questions and not being afraid to ask questions and, you know, um, really making sure you're, you're doing everything that you can to, to do this heightened verse justice. And I think when we started, when I, when we started rehearsing, I realized, oh, like, I, I can't look at it like, me being a rapper and now here's a performance. I, I didn't want to do that. Um, I wanted it to be natural, raw and real. And I realized it's like how I attacked it was how I would attack a Shakespeare monologue, you know, with rhyming and, um, you know, verse and prose and, you know, all of, all of this stuff. Um, you see when she, when she does these verses, it is when she is most her honest and purest self. And if you ever wonder what she's thinking in this whole episode, you can rely on this verse. And she's sharing a piece of herself that is not influenced by any other character. So her opinion or the way she is, isn't going to change, it's not fake. It is completely 100% her and what she's feeling in the moment. And, I, you know, I, I think after we talked about it and we did the first one, we realized, okay, this is, this is where it's at. You know, you see her, you see all the thoughts breaking down in her mind and her thoughts are changing and literally like in the moment when she's doing it, 
And um, it's almost like these confessions or we can look at it as these letters that she writes to Sean that she wants him to read when he's like 30. I think, you know, the storytelling is something I've never seen before. You know, it's not a musical. It's not, it's so many things. It's it's completely in its own lane. Um, and I think really shows verse in a way that that we haven't seen on TV. We've seen it loads of times in theater. You know, you go to the New Eureka Poets Cafe, you you walk right up in there and, and there it is. You know, it's there. It's been done before. But I think on TV, not not in a way like this. So then tell me about spoken word within the show as a tool of storytelling, because listen, spoken word, much like Les Miserables can rub people the wrong way because they don't talk. They just sing throughout the whole thing and people just are not used to that form of communication. Um what do you think is the future of spoken word? Because I know Carlos Lopez Estrada is also doing Summertime that's all poetry. So I feel like it's almost making a comeback. Um, for you, how is spoken word used? Do you like the spoken word used in storytelling in Hollywood films and TV shows? Is that the future of dialogue? I don't know. I think I think it can be. I think I think constantly, you know, going out of the box and doing storytelling in a different way that people aren't used to. I think we like, let's keep doing it. I mm. think, I think, um, you know, spoken word can definitely 100%, you know, happen in, in storytelling in in movies and, and in TV. Um, you know, it just has to be done right. You need the right people behind it. And, you know, you need people that like know what they're doing and, and have that talent and have that history. I think it's happened. You know, I think in blind spotting, you're you're already so connected to these characters. You know, again, it, it it's not it's not this performance piece that that we're doing. We've managed to find a way where it really connects with these characters and you're, you're starting to like these characters and connect with them. And, you know, when you see Ashley at her like purest self, you're like, Oh, okay. She's doing spoken word now. Like, I think it, it, it comes off as a way where it doesn't hit you so hard um, where it seems like something that is separate. Um, and, and I think that's what I love about it the most. Um, but I think it just has to be done right. You know, I, I, I don't think we should all, everybody should all just start doing spoken word and, <laughs> you know, like it, it should be in every single movie and, and here we go. I, you know, I think like it still needs to be done right and thought out and, and planned correctly and executed right with the right people. All right, well, I, I wanna build on what Jack just asked you because from where I'm sitting, uh, everything old is new again. You know, having mm. having storytelling return to prose. I mean, hello, what's Shakespeare? So it, it's sort of, you know, certain things come back. Uh, but one of the things that really struck me, not just the spoken word, but what I mentioned before, the theatricality, and, and you're talking about the collaborative nature you mentioned of this. So characters, even if they're not talking, all of a sudden they're moving boxes and it's a dance, you know, and yeah. it's almost a performance. And, and it speaks to the rhythm of everyday life when we meet the character, you know, they're walking down the street carrying something, but they're connecting with other people. So I'm curious about what it's like on set uh, in terms of that collaborative nature that, you know, do you find a lot of moments 
to do things? Uh, or is it really all well choreographed and rehearsed before you ever get on set? We shot this in the middle of a pandemic. Okay. <laughs> we, we stopped production because in January, not because people had COVID, because there were no hospital beds available in LA. And they were like, if somebody even breaks their arm or leg or something on set, we have nowhere to take them. So we were like very crunched on time. Everybody had to put on their thinking hats and come together in this collaborative state and work together, you know, really hard to execute this. Um, yes, there was a lot of planning before, you know, um, a lot of the dancers like did, did a lot of rehearsals like on their own. But then like when we all came together, you know, we weren't allowed to go into another room and all come together and work. Mm. And if we did, we had to, you know, have a mask and a shield on and not be able to like see each other and connect with each other. So it was a real, real challenge when it came to, you know, kind of all of us in one space and trying to like navigate this heightened theatrical world um but i gotta say like everyone was is so good at what they do on this show and everybody showed up and thought quickly and methodically and we all really really worked together to to create this in a, in a very short amount of time and in a very weird world <laughs> you know um but it was it was absolutely beautiful because it was like what can we do when we're under a little bit of this stress and are we going to do this can we do it and we we always did we always did you know we're we're going to do we can sit here and complain about it or we can like be so thankful and grateful that we're even have a job at the moment and that like we can even be here yeah. You know, and 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 create something really, really beautiful and meaningful that we all connect to in some sort of way. And, you know, we know that is, you know, going to change the game in, in some, you know, who people who've never seen spoken word like this or read a Greek play with the with the, you know, the Greek chorus in the background. And what does that mean? Or see dance and, you know, in an emotional way that that also helps the story and tells the story. I agree. And also, before we go, I got to let you know that um, I started out in radio doing radio drama. And one of the first pieces I ever did was I adapted a play uh, that I had seen that I thought was amazing. And I thought the lead in the play was amazing. It was off Broadway. And, and I brought it into the radio station. And I produced it. And that actor was your dad. And I got to say, like you, you know, we, we had this conversation about like, because he had never done audio drama or anything and you know everything you were saying about facing your fears reminds me of a quote where they said every time you feel afraid that means you're about to grow so mm. uh what's exciting about what you're doing in this show is that it's expanding the form it's showing what's possible like if you haven't stretched this corner done that and combined this you know they have mixed martial arts why why can't we have mixed storytelling so i guess my last question to you is right now uh, I, I guess I don't think there's ever been a better time for people of color in the industry. What, what do you hope to see happen 
just in terms of representation, uh, in terms of women behind the scenes? Like, are, is this as exciting to you as it seems to me? Yeah, I, you know, I, with blind spotting, we have, you know, women directors on the show, women of color. We have, you know, women producers. We have women writers in the room. We have a fem- we're a heavy, heavy female cast that is leading this story. And so everything about the show is exactly what I believe in and what I want in the future. I think, yes, seeing seeing more people of color, um, more more women leading these stories is is great, but we also need to get more behind the scenes, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I think it's slowly happening. I don't think we're there yet, but I think something's clicked. This did not look like this 10 years ago. <laughs> this did not look like this five years ago, you know? Um, and and that is something to celebrate. And that is something to be happy about. And that is something to be proud of. Um, but we still got a ways to go. And I, we're, we're not <laughs> done yet. No, no, no. We're not done yet, you know? <laughs> we can celebrate, but we keep on moving and keep on knocking on that door, you know? Jasmine, you you uh, about five, six days ago, a New York Times article came out about the premiere. I think on the day of the premiere, it, it, it was called uh, In Blind Spotting, Jasmine Sefa Jones Steps Into Full View. Um, you talked about how seeing that article made you feel incredible because it was a journey. So what does that article mean to you specifically? And is the words on the paper, does that have a farther reaching meaning to you? of what that represents in your life. Yeah, I mean, you know, New York Times, I'm from Brooklyn, I'm from New York. You know, New York Times is a, you know, it's a very big news article that I've, you know, read and seen since I was a little girl. And this journey has been a lot of ups and downs and a lot of no's and a lot of fear and a lot of working through that. Um, And I'm just, it's it's really hard to like take in and and you know read an article like that and be like oh my god you know um <laughs> here we are but there's so much more that i want to do and there's so much more that i want to say and you know i i'm just i'm just really happy that the platform is this show that i got to work with some of my closest friends um, and we all believe in the same thing and we all want the same thing and we all want to talk about a lot of these issues and 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 talk about it in our art. And um, I'm just happy that this has been, you know, kind of the big lead that I'm in that that people are seeing me in and it's and it's this show. I'm, I'm very proud of the show. And I don't know, it was a lot to take in when I read the article, like I shed a tear or two. I was like... Wow. <laughs> Jasmine, we have a few minutes left and uh, I'd be remiss if I don't ask you about the backlash of In the Heights. Anthony Ramos obviously is the lead in that film. Uh, you're not just a bystander. You're also a part of this whole thing uh, externally. Um, wanted to get sort of your thoughts on whether you agree what the criticism is about this and what do you think movies, I guess Lin-Manuel movies in particular, should do moving forward uh, do you think he needs to correct anything? Do you defend it? Do you, do you see the criticism? I particularly feel like they went after the wrong guy. 
I think they need to go after the system. And by the way, colorism has been existing in Univision and Telemundo for decades as Mexican and Mexican Televisa have always put white Latinos in front. But yeah. white Latinos in this country isn't the same thing as Anglo whites. So do you think that the criticisms are fair? I, the fact that everybody is having this conversation at the moment, I think it's a good thing. I think that we're we're having these conversations. I think that's a good thing. I, you know, Lynn is a is a great person and and he's done a lot. Um, and I, you know, I don't think people should a attack him, but I I do feel like that we're having this conversation. It's it's a good conversation. That's it for this 51st episode of Brown and Black. If you would like to support this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. Your help will only allow us to be heard by many more people. This episode was edited by Joshua Terrado. On next week's episode, we'll be joined by Dominican Afro-Latino musician Yasser Tejada, who considers himself to be transnational. In the conservatory, they have two departments, the classical music and the popular music. And it's great in a way, but it's weird in a way too because it's great you get exposed to jazz and latin music and of all over the world but i didn't learn for example merengue in the conservatory it was everything was more focused to jazz and american music or european music but mm. our music you can follow our comments and opinions on at Brown Black Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We'll see you on the next episode of Brown and Black. Mm -hmm.